A lone gunner takes eight lives in Allen, Texas, before being shot by a police officer. Protests turn violent in New York over the death of Jordan Neely. The Biden administration sends troops to the border to act as a welcome wagon for the estimated one million immigrants who are prepared to cross once Title 42 ends. And religious liberty is back before the Supreme Court. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Welcome in, everybody, to Truth and Politics and Culture. This is Dr. Tony Beam. Thanks for joining us live, if that's what you're doing this morning. We're live every morning from 7.30 to 8.30. We're live on Facebook. We're live on YouTube. And, of course, you can listen live at the website. That's drtonybeam.com, drtonybeam.com. So I hope your day is getting started off well. It's a Monday. Uh, that means the weekend has come to an end. And here in South Carolina, um, at least in the upstate, it looks like we're going to have a rainy day. Had some thunderstorms booming around last night, and we are getting some rain even early this morning. Okay, a couple of things statewide before we move on to national stories. According to South Carolina Citizens for Life and other pro-life groups in South Carolina, including uh, the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, it looks like there's going to be some movement this week when it comes to the possibility of an, a, a pro-life bill getting passed before the end of the legislative session. Now, we, we don't know all the details. We don't have a whole lot to talk about. But we do know that according to Representative John McCravey, who's the leader of the Family Caucus, it looks like that the, uh, the House is going to take up the six-week ban, which would be the heartbeat bill that was passed by the Senate. Now, that doesn't mean that the bill will be taken up and just simply passed, but it does mean that the House has is, is got a plan or is planning to move the bill to the floor for debate. Now, the problem is we've only got three days left. We've got today, uh, tomorrow, and Thursday, and then the session officially comes to an end, and this bill would have to get passed quickly in the House and go back to the Senate, and the Senate will have to concur if the bill is to become law. So we're going to keep you up to date about this. I'll have more to say about it tomorrow. Um, as we get a little bit closer into the debates. I said tomorrow. It's tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday, rather, um, that is the actual legislative session. So they're not going to meet today. But they, they meet Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So if they can get that done in the next three days before the session ends, then we've got the possibility here of getting um, a, a, a bill that will keep us from being a, an abortion destination state. Uh, some people are saying that we're going to become an abortion destination state, but according to DHEC, we're at 1,000 abortions or over 1,000 abortions a month, which means we are an abortion destination state. We are right now. Now, the question is, are we going to continue to be that, or are we going to get some legislation that the House and the Senate can agree on, and we can stop the Holocaust? Lisa Van Riper, who's president of South Carolina Citizens for Life, said, we appreciate the action by the House. The House is taking the right action at the right time to save as many children as possible. We encourage the House and the Senate to move forward. The heartbeat is an indicator of life at all stages of human development. And then the release from South Carolina Citizens for Life goes on to uh, quote the DHEC figures, which has um, more than 1,000 babies a month being aborted in South Carolina. Of course, what's really spurred this along is that North Carolina is passing a pro-life bill, and they now have the supermajority votes to override a veto by the Democrat governor. And you've already got Florida's heartbeat bill, which is going into effect. It We haven't felt the effects of it yet, but we will here in South Carolina. And so now the House and the Senate have gotten together and said, hey, um, we've got to do something. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. We should be uh, very excited about the possibility, but cautiously excited, I guess I should say, 
and cautiously optimistic that maybe we can get something done uh, before the end of the week. All right. Um, we've had another mass shooting incident in Allen, Texas. A lone gunman stepped out of his car around 3.30 p.m. on Sunday. He immediately started shooting people outside the store. Video footage shows that he fired at least 40 shots with some type of long gun. We don't know. We haven't been told what time of wep what type of weapon it was. Um, of course, what we hear immediately is that it's an it's an AR-15 or what they like to say is an AR-15 style wef weapon because they want to get AR-15 out there in the news in a negative way as many times as possible. Uh, if you're going to ban a particular firearm, you've got to get the public behind it. And so AR-15, just keep, just keep in mind that you're going to hear that, and the AR-15 is going to be the boogeyman in all of these incidents, even if they call it an AR-15-style weapon, because we're getting set for a big push, which we're already getting from the Biden administration, and we'll have to see if Republicans are willing to stand for the Second Amendment here, or if they're going to be willing to start banning particular types of weapon because of, of the kind of weapon that it is. Um, the incident ended when a lone police officer who had been dispatched to the outlet mall for an unrelated incident engaged and neutralized the shooter who was dressed in tactical gear and carrying some kind of rifle. He also carried a handgun and multiple weapons, according to authorities, were found in his car. So what happened here? Well, it's not going to be in the news story. It's not, you're not going to find this statement anywhere in the legacy media but a good guy with a gun stopped a bad guy with a gun by using a gun. So if guns are all bad and guns are the scourge of the world, then the, there were two guns that were fired at this, uh, at this uh, tragedy, this shooting at this outlet mall in Texas. One was fired by someone who we don't know why they did it. We're going to talk about some of the uh, supposed motivation here or alleged motivation that's being investigated here in a minute. But we, we do know that they used a firearm to wreak havoc. And then we had a police officer use a firearm who fired and stopped the shooter that was killing innocent people. So the guns, in this case, one used for a tragedy, the other used to administer justice and to protect innocent lives. I mean, I think this is important for us to know as we have this debate over guns and what we're going to do about guns and are guns the source of all these shootings. I've, I've made this argument many times on my radio show and now on this program. I'll make the argument again that a firearm is a tool. It is a weapon, but it must be carried by a person. It has to be used by someone. If it's used by a person who is evil and who wants to take innocent life, then it's going to result in a tragedy. If it's used by a law enforcement officer or by a citizen who has a, a permit to carry a weapon in states that require permits, and if it's used to stop mass killing, if it's used to put an end to a shooter, then the gun becomes an instrument of good. Just like seconds before, another gun was an instrument for, for terror. I mean, it was an in, instru, instrument of death, and for innocent people. And the, and this is what this is what we need to see as you stack up these arguments one against the other. I mean, there are those who want the gun manufacturer. President Biden, of course, released a statement about this immediately. And one of the things he said is, of course, we've got to ban us all assault type weapons. That's going to be the first thing that he says. And then now we're hearing an added mantra that we've got to hold the gun manufacturers accountable. Now, you know, this also this weekend, there was a car down on the Mexican border that plowed into a group of people and killed several. Are we going to, are we going to hold the car manufacturers accountable? Are we going to start banning automobiles? And I know people say, well, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. A car is a tool for good. It gets us from point A to point B. Um, there, there's all kinds. I mean, I don't think I have to sit here and talk about all the kind of good things that happen with an automobile. 
but an automobile in the hands of a deranged person, which we saw, what, a couple of years ago when you had that case. I can't remember what state it was in, but we had a person just plow into a parade and start running down innocent people in, in the hands of a killer, in the hands of a mentally unstable person in the hands of a person who just wants to go out and do evil, then an automobile is every much as deadly a weapon as a gun. But we don't hear anybody talking about suing car manufacturers, at least not over this, and we certainly don't hear anybody talking about banning banning cars uh, because that everybody understands that would be ridiculous. It's not the car. The car didn't um, you know suddenly leave the garage somebody's garage to simply get an urge to go out and run down people there was a person behind the wheel and the person behind the wheel needs to be held accountable but the car doesn't I mean you don't put the car to death you don't crush the car in the and use its metal to what make another car and that that's absurd because the car was just simply a, a tool that was used by someone to wreak havoc. Now, another interesting thing about this is that the mall area, this this outlet mall, is a gun-free zone. Now, when you have a guns-free zone, here's what that means. You know, people think, well, gun-free zone, there won't be any guns there. Yes, there will be guns there by people who don't obey the law. The problem is the people who do obey the law and would be willing to do something to stop someone who's not obeying the law, don't have a gun because they're obeying the law. And so if if ever there was an example of how restrictive gun laws do not work, this would be it. Because all a gun-free zone does is keep guns out of the hands of the good guys, giving all of the guns to the bad guys, who then show up and kill the good guys because they don't have the ability to fight back. And when a good guy with a gun shows up on the scene, then all of a sudden the bad guy is neutralized. And by the way, this police officer, I, I, I haven't been able to find a whole lot about him, but I'm telling you, he is a hero. He called for backup, but he did not wait until the backup got there. He basically got on the radio and said, send everybody. And then he confronted the shooter. He ran in the directions of the, of the shots being fired. And by himself, without backup, he fired and took out the assailant. I mean, this, is, this guy deserves the applaud and, and the thanks of the entire community and the entire world, for that matter, for, being, for, for actually acting on his training. That's what police officers are trained to do. They're trained to run toward danger to encounter that danger, and to do everything they can to protect the public. And that's what this police officer did. The shooter was um, 33-year-old Mauricio, I think that's right, M-A-U-R-I-C-S, Mauricio Garcia. Uh, The police are investigating the incident as a potential act of domestic terrorism. Garcia had RDWS on his clothing. Now, Some reports said it was on his chest. Some say that it was a patch. Some say it was just initials that were found on his clothing somewhere. So it it, it does matter, I think, a little bit as to what where this was found. Because right now the, the authorities are assuming that RDWS stands for Right Wing Death Squad. And we do know that there are those in the white supremacist movement and far, far right, um, groups that are neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups that use this RDWS as as, as something that they're proud of. So is it possible that that connects him to a white supremacist group? Well, he's Hispanic, um, but that doesn't mean that he could not be involved with a white supremacist group. And it's not just the RDWS that's causing law enforcement officials to investigate this in this way. Uh, It's also the social media posts that included some neo-Nazi and white supremacist rhetoric. Um, And that has authorities looking at this as a possible domestic terrorist incident or a hate crime. Garcia lived with his parents in northeast Dallas, but he had recently moved into an apartment 
Authorities searched the home of his parents. We don't know what they found. According to the authorities, his parents are cooperating um, as far as answering questions and helping authorities with the investigations. In the with the investigation, Garcia was a license was licensed as a security guard from 2016 to 2020, and that's when his license expired. License expired. We know that he worked for at least three security companies. He had level two and level three training. Level two would have given him a lot of operational information, uh, information about the laws of the state of Texas. Um, it, it would have, and, and, and level three, of course, is, is it, it, he would be certified with a firearm, and apparently he had had up to six hours of training and marksmanship. He worked for three security companies before his uh, license expired. Now, President Biden released a statement, of course, calling for a ban on assault-style weapons and then calling for gun manufacturers, as I said earlier, to be held responsible for crimes that are committed by the guns that they manufacture. And so, again, I, I guess another thing to think about here, if you're going to hold the gun manufacturer accountable that actually made the weapon that this assailant used to kill these people, then you also would have to give a medal, I guess, to the gun manufacturer who manufactured the gun that was used by the police officer to stop him from killing more people. I mean, it, were, were, they, were the guns made by the same manufacturer? Were they made by different manufacturers? How do we rate the, the fact that a police officer used the, the same thing, a weapon, a gun, to bring order to a situation that was out of control? Are, are we going to give that gun manufacturer uh, some extra opportunity to sell their products? Because we believe that it, it obviously is the gun that should be blamed. So if the manufacturer is making a good gun, then they should get a medal. And the manufacturer is making a bad gun. And But the problem is gun manufacturers make all kinds of guns. They make handguns. They make long guns. And this business of the Biden administration going after the manufacturer is just another way of pressing a progressive anti-Second Amendment agenda to try to rob law-abiding citizens of their right, their constitutional right, to own and carry a firearm for their own protection and the protection of others if the opportunity arises, if they're in a situation where they need protection. And so... Um, this is this is just one of those uh, tragic case. I mean, it's a tragic, terrible thing. We don't know if if this guy had mental problems yet. Uh, we don't we don't know a whole lot about it. But but another thing that I would point out in the shooting in Nashville that happened at the Christian school, we still know very little about the transgender um, assailant who killed those children and teachers in that school in Nashville. They will not release the manifesto that this person wrote. And so we, we had very little information. To, to get the information about the shooter, we had to wring it out of law enforcement agencies. And, you, and, and folks, look, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and, and my, the reason I say that is because I've always said that there's enough stuff happening out in front of everybody that we don't need to go looking around behind every bush to find conspiracy theories when there's so much stuff going on in plain sight. And to me, this incident in Nashville compared to this incident in Allen, you, you saw one shooter whose identity doesn't line up with a progressive narrative when it comes to outing them and letting the whole world in on why they did what they did. Because the Biden administration wants to advance and protect transgen a transgender narrative, and obviously having a shooter, someone who shoots up a school, uh, allegedly, or at least possibly, let's put it that way, because of the, the, the school teaches biblical truth about sexuality and that this would be a violent action by taking somebody taken by somebody that the Biden administration is actually defending and pushing, 
then then but but then we have someone who possibly is connected to a right-wing extremist group and that is right down the main street of the Biden administration's agenda and narrative to vilify people on the right. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not defending extreme far-right groups like neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Um, and in fact, I condemn all of that 100%, and I think that their leaders should be rounded up. If they're perpetrating violence or planning violence or if they're uh, harassing uh, people based on their sick ideas, then I think they ought to be rounded up and put in, pres- in prison. But the point is this, that that is a narrative that the Biden administration wants to pursue. They want to paint all domestic terrorist incidents as being connected some way to the right. If it turns out that it's someone on the left, because the, the plain truth of the matter is, people on the left, on the right, and in the middle are capable of violent actions if they're evil or if they're mentally deranged. And it, and it really doesn't, their politics often doesn't play into it. But if somehow the Justice Department or the Biden administration can advance the narrative, they're going to advance the one quickly that could point to right-wing extremism because that's what they want you to believe, that all of these acts are domestic terrorist acts perpetrated by people on the right because that advances the political agenda of progressives. And so that's why here within, what, hours Within a day of this terrible incident taking place, you've got police authorities already releasing information that's trying to tie this guy to a white supremacist neo-Nazi group. And maybe he was. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he wasn't. But it's interesting to me that you have the shooting in Nashville and it takes forever to get that information, for us to get information that says that it was a transgender shooter who killed six people in a Christian school, and we still don't have all the details. And now all of a sudden, information is flooding out about the perpetrator because it fits the narrative that progressives want to portray in the mainstream media. And this is something that is a relatively, well, when I say it's a relatively new phenomenon, um, you know, bias in the media and leaning one way or the other has been going on for a long time. It's just that now it's not even hidden anymore. They don't even try to hide the fact that they're accentuating certain parts of one story while downplaying parts of another story based on whether it lines up with the progressive agenda that they're putting out for people. And this is something that when you read the news, when you pay attention to what's going on in the world, you, you need to take this into consideration, that what you're seeing is through a filter. It's the filter now of the Justice Department, as well as the legacy media. I mean, the Justice Department is involved in playing these things in one direction or the other. Another thing I want to talk about before we leave this story is the horrific nature of what this shooter did. We had a, a, a father who got a, a cell phone call from his son and that the shooting was taking place, and he rushed to the outlet center. Apparently, he lived very close. And when he got on the scene, he discovered um, a woman who was dead, but he heard sound coming from the vicinity. And when he, when he moved the woman, he found her little boy underneath, he, he immediately scampered out and said that his mother had been hurt. And obviously his mother had shielded him with her body and she gave her life that he could live. You know, this is, what, what does that point to? It points to the natural, God-given response of a mother to protect her child. I mean, if ever... And, and, and I know I may get some criticism for this, but I think this is absolutely true. If ever there was a pro-life statement or story, that pro-life statement would be that a mother would shield her son knowing that she could die 
but her thought is not about herself because her natural instinct is to do everything, everything she can as a mom to save the life of her child. How much does that fly in the face of our culture's understanding about abortion, of a, a, a political party that pushes abor abortion right up until the moment of birth and even after birth? It is, it is against the natural instinct and the God-given ability or call for moms to protect their children to promote abortion up to the moment of birth and even after. And this is, this is clear. It's a, it's a tragedy. It's a heart-wrenching thing. But at the same time, it reveals to us the natural instinct that God gives to moms to protect their children, to do whatever it takes. You know, I, I would think that if I, was, if I was in the same situation, that's what I would do. Would I give my life for my children or my grandchildren? As I sit here today, I really believe that I would. Now, I don't know what I would do until that situation unfolds, full disclosure. I mean, I don't think anybody knows, but I think... I know what my natural God-given instinct would be, would be to protect those that I love, not be involved in taking their life before they have a chance to even be born. And I, 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 just, I, th I think that just paints a picture for us of the importance and the understanding of the fact that life is precious and that we are created in the image of God and that life is a gift and it's a beautiful thing. Um, every time we see these shootings, it it breaks my heart. But it's always the the emphasis is always on the instrument and not the shooter. It people who want to kill other people will find a way, whether it's a gun, a knife. We had we we just had someone arrested for multiple knife attacks. Um, we. We, we saw a rash of those in Great Britain a couple of years ago. Um, whether it's a gun or a knife or a car or a bat or whatever the instrument of destruction is, it's not about the instrument. It's about the one who wields it and what's wrong with them and why are they taking that action. Uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we understand evil in the world and we understand the, the fact that we are created in the image of God, but we also are a fallen people, a sinful people, and that apart from God and God's grace and mercy, we will sink down to the lowest common denominator of humanity, which in, in essence is a selfishness that turns into the, the thought that we can do anything we want without consequences. We need to pray for these families. Um, I can't imagine the pain that they're going through. I can't imagine uh, these the 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 family of this little boy whose mother gave her life to save his. Uh, what they're feeling, the anger, the hurt, the the pain. Um, we need to pray for them. We need to lift them up today, um, and and ask that God would give them peace and save them from despair. All right. Um, Moving on to another story from over the weekend, protest over the death of Jordan Neely turned violent over the weekend. You had demonstrators in New York clashing with police, and some of the demonstrators actually jumped on the subway tracks, causing subway traffic to come to a halt, and police removed them from the tracks, but other protesters were actually in the subway preventing people from getting on the subway cars. And so police had to try to take them and move them up to the street. It's not that they—I want you to understand something. It's not that anybody was trying to keep them from peacefully protesting. But peaceful protests do not shut down subway systems and cause other people who maybe don't agree with the protesters to have to put up with this kind of thing and, and have their lives disrupted because of actions of the protesters. When police tried to move the protesters out of the subway and up onto the street, the protesters fought back 
And it started, it, it got pretty chaotic on the platform and resulted in a lot of people getting arrested. Um, and, and this is, look, this, this, is a, this incident is, is a terrible incident in and of itself. Jordan, Jordan Neely was a schizophrenic who was failed, who, who, who society failed. Now, he's being made a martyr. He's being made into a hero. He's been made in, he's being made into someone that everybody should look to as an example of the injustice that's in that is in the world. But the truth is that he was a victim of a mental illness, and the people in his life and the people in the that are now trying to turn him into a martyr do not care enough about him to try to intercede for him to take his medicines and for him to get the help that he needed. And until that day comes, until we realize that people who are homeless and who, who suffer from schizophrenia and have the possibility and have demonstrated in the past a, 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 an inclination to violent behavior, until people begin to intercede and the government begins to step in and provide real solutions for these people. And it doesn't have to be just the government. I mean, it can be, it can be churches. It can be nonprofits. It can be a partnership in the community. But everybody's got to come together and recognize that the problem here is a mental illness that's causing people to do these things. Public response to this has been all over the map. I mean, it's been very divided. Some say that he wasn't a threat, um, even though he was threatening passengers on the train. And, and, and they're saying, well, he's done this before. He hasn't hurt anybody. He should be ignored. The problem is these people are ignoring Neely's police record that includes 43 arrests and charges ranging from trespassing all the way up to assault. Now, we know he's hit two people. In fact, there was a warrant out for his arrest from an incident that happened in 2021 where he actually broke the orbital bone of a 67-year-old woman. He, now, that's, ladies and gentlemen, that's violent behavior. That's not somebody that's cute when they dress up like Michael Jackson and decide to dance in the street and on the subway. That indicates when a person is threatening others around him, saying he doesn't care if he gets life in prison, he's, he's going to hurt people. When he's making those statements and he has a record of violent behavior, back in 2015 he was convicted of a, attempting to kidnap a seven-year-old girl. And, I, I mean, we don't even want to imagine what that would have been like for her. But the fact is, this is not someone who was not a danger to himself and others. He had demonstrated that time and time again. But the, the, but the people that are defending, them, defending him, they've got a narrative. We're back to narratives again. And the narrative is that this, this is a homeless person who the mean right-wing people in society think should be held accountable for their actions. Uh, sign me up. I think he should be held accountable for his actions. If he'd been in jail instead of on the subway that day, or if he'd been in a treatment facility for his schizophrenia, which would have been much better, if there would have been some kind of program, and even Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, admits that they've got a serious problem with mental health issues on the streets and in the subways of New York City. But there are no plans. There hasn't been anything brought forth. Nothing's being done about it, except when we have an incident like this, it becomes nationally focused, and we begin to focus on the person who restrained him rather than on the problem with his schizophrenia. So, you know, it, it, no matter how many, just, just keep this in mind, no matter how many social media posts you see of Neely dressed like Michael Jackson dancing in the subway, he was not a nonviolent pacifist who people regarded as a happy nuisance or as sometimes a person who was an entertainer on the subway. Multiple social media posts by people who have been harassed or threatened by Neely point to his psychotic behavior. It wasn't just the 43 times that he was caught 
There are a lot of people who knew this name. They knew this person, and they've posted about the fact that he's threatened or intimidated them or even attacked them. Um, others say Neely, as his arrest record points out, had a violent tendency, and obviously he did. Now, we know, we know from this weekend the identity of the 24-year-old Marine who held Neely in a chokehold. Uh, police haven't charged him. Uh, he's, they, they took him into custody. They questioned him. They questioned other witnesses, and they released Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny is the, is the Marine. He, he served in, uh, let's see, I think two tours with the infantry, and he was the recipient of several awards and medals, and he left military service in 2021 with a rank of sergeant and just an, a normal honorable discharge when he wrapped up his service. And so now, of course, there's half the country trying to turn him into some kind of villain because he took action to protect himself and others on the subway from what he perceived to be a threat. And now that we know Jordan Neely's background, we know the assaults that are in his record, we know that this was a legitimate threat. This wasn't something that he just simply made up or thought was was happening. This was a person who had violent tendencies. And when he was shouting that he was going to kill everybody or shouting that he didn't care if he got life in prison or getting up in people's face and harassing them, there was ample reason to believe that he could turn violent. Now, they didn't know this. I mean, I get it. The people on the train, uh, well, some of them might have, but most of the people didn't know about his, his violent behavior in the past. But can they really take that chance? I mean, if you're on a subway train and somebody is making those kind of threats and they won't back down, then is it the responsibility of the people to simply take it? Where are the police at this point? Where are the people that are supposed to be protecting the subway? Now, they can't be everywhere, but until they come, if, if there's an immediate imminent threat, then something has to be done about that. Uh, Penny's lawyers have released a statement. They say, quote, when Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Mr. Penny and the other passengers, uh, now, th and let me stop right there because a lot of people think, well, he was threatening other people and Penny stepped in. What business was it of his? Well, first of all, a United States Marine is trained to protect people. They're not just going to stand by if they had the ability, the training to stop someone from threatening other people. But now we know that Neely was actually threatening Penny as well. Let me go back to the statement. When Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Mr. Penny and the other passengers, Daniel, with the help of others, acted to protect themselves until help arrived. He never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen his untimely death. They went on to say that they hoped that the incident would motivate elected officials to address the mental health crisis on our streets and subways. Homicide detectives are currently investigating the case. Now, there's still a possibility that charges will be brought against Neely. There's a lot of pressure being brought on the prosecutor in New York, and this is the same Alvin Bragg who brought charges against uh, Donald Trump. He's the prosecutor that's supposed to handle this case. And I guarantee you the left and progressives that are turning Jordan Neely into George Floyd, which the circumstances are completely different, that, that this is that, that, that they are pressuring him to bring some kind of serious charges, maybe even a murder charge, against Daniel Penny. And look, that this, as far as I'm concerned, Daniel Penny acted according to his training. He protected people on that train. I don't believe he intended to kill Neely. He held him in a chokehold, and Neely with and, and Neely died. He he held him in the chokehold until he was unconscious. Unconscious. He kept fighting against Penny, and then finally, when he lost consciousness, he released him. And later, he was he later died. And this is, I mean, while that's tragic, nobody wants the death of anybody, particularly someone like Jordan Neely, who needed help. But to hold Daniel Penny responsible when Neely 
was a threat. And Daniel Penny was doing what a lot of people would not do. You know, there. how many instances are there a day in this country where bad things could be prevented from happening if good people step up and intervene? I mean, th- this is... It, it has always been uh, sort of a, um, a symbol of American culture that when people are being bullied, people are being harassed, people are being threatened, that a good guy steps to the front that has the ability to neutralize the threat, to stop the threat from hurting innocent people. And that's something I think should be applauded. Now, we don't know all the details yet. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up here and just simply say if it can be proven that Daniel Penny held him in that chokehold too long, if he held him in a way that caused his death, even if it was unintentional, should there be some accountability? See, the, the thing is that if, if it's determined that he's accountable for Jordan Neely's death, it won't be a manslaughter charge or second-degree manslaughter, something, an unintentional death, they'll go after murder charges. They'll go after at least second-degree murder and maybe capital murder against this guy. I mean, that's, that's what happened with the police involved in the George Floyd incident. They charged them with very high crimes that would suppose motive and intent and I just I don't see any motive or intent here in Daniel Penny unless you are in actions unless you believe that he has a history of going around the country trying to find black people to put in a chokehold. And I don't believe we're going to find that. I think we're going to find that he was a person that was thrust into a situation that felt like he had to do his best to protect the to protect the other people on that train on that subway car and to protect himself. But that's not going to be, that doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative in America today is a white person who steps forward, and if the person who is injured is black, then it's automatically a symptom of of systemic racism, and that it's evidence that white people are roving around trying to find black people to kill. And that's ridiculous. It's not true. And the same people that would say that ignore the amount of crime that's perpetrated black on black. I mean, if you look at Chicago, if you look at Baltimore, if you look at Philadelphia, if you look at other major cities, Los Angeles, you find that it a lot of the crime that takes place is black on black, white on white. I mean, it, Hispanic on Hispanic, it's, it's not a racial question. It's a question of violence and violent behavior. But we're never going to solve that if every instance has to be focused around race. You know, in the George Floyd case, people still forget the fact, and because it was never published very well in the legacy media, that the prosecution in the George Floyd case never raised the racial question. They never pointed out the racial disparity or differences between the officers and George Floyd. And why is that? Because there was no evidence that those officers were acting out of racial animus, and yet we burned up the country. We had neighborhoods destroyed. We we had black businesses burned because it, it was the narrative that because the police officer was white, and the victim was African-American, it was systemic racism, and it's got to be addressed. That started the defund the police movement. I mean, the, it, the defund the police movement was out there before, but it really got its impetus. It got rolling and actually got put in place in different places places for a little while because it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It was never going to work. Get rid of police officers, put in social workers, to handle violent criminals? Are you kidding me? So this we're never going to solve these problems, these problems in our culture that keep popping up if we keep imagining that it's all about race 
when it isn't. It's either about mental illness, as in the case of um, Jordan Neely, or it's, it's about whatever motivated the shooter in Allen, Texas. It's about a society, a societal breakdown of morals and a lack of restraint. This is is the people casting off restraint, and it's because of of what's happened in our culture. We've abandoned the the true teaching of God. We've abandoned the idea of intact families. I mean, everything that makes society stable is under attack. Every institution that brings society closer rather than pushing it farther apart is under attack. Our school systems. It used to be a place where kids would go to school and there was a community cohesion around that school and the things that were taught were influenced by the parents, working with the educators, PTA meetings, school board meetings, where things were well-managed, now all that's falling apart. The same thing is true um, for, for the church and in it, its influence in the world, in the culture. Church leaders today are afraid to speak out about some of these problems, afraid to try to address them. Now, they're courageous pastors and churches that are trying to deal with this. I'm not saying that there aren't. But there's a lot of fear involved in that because of the backlash that they're afraid they're going to get if they speak out about these issues and call it anything but racism. So churches, families, the things that are bedrock institutions that hold the culture together are under attack. And the more they erode, the more of the chaos Gets trans- what we see in our culture happening today is linked to the erosion of those things that traditionally have held our society closer together. All right, let's talk a little bit about immigration because we have got a mess about to happen. There are an estimated 1 million illegal immigrants just waiting at the border to come across when Title 42 expires on May the 11th, and we're get this is this is May the 8th. Uh, this is this Thursday is when this this is predicted to happen, and the Biden administration response so far has to be has been to send 1,500 troops to the border. Now, what are they going to do? Well, you see, because of posse comitatus, the military can't enforce the immigration laws. They're going to be down there handing out food and water. They're going to be down there handing out blankets. As one former Border Patrol agent said, these 1,500 soldiers are simply going to be the welcome wagon for these immigrants as they cross the border. And so what is the plan? See, I think the American people are, as a, as, for the most part, they're compassionate about people's situation and why they want to come to the United States. But they understand, too, that we can't just have a wide open border because of all that that leads to. I mean, it leads to children, for example. We've still got unaccompanied children that are somehow coming across the border, being trafficked into the United States. And the Biden administration, there were pictures published over the weekend of children sitting in cages. And I mean, they're they're they're. Uh, crowded cages, and that's that they're being fed. They're they're having their needs met, but they're in a cage. Now, this is something that the media and left wing politicians lost their mind over during the Trump administration, and it was pointed out that the same thing was happening under the the Obama administration, and now it's happening under the Biden administration. Except it's happening on steroids because we have so many more children that are in that situation, that are crossing the border, that are having to be taken care of one way or another. And that we're about to have an onslaught. Right now, you, according to Border Patrol agents, there are between five and 6,000 encounters a day. When Title 42 ends on Thursday, they're estimating it will, it will automatically jump to around 13 to 14,000 plus 
encounters per day. And 1,500 soldiers are not going to solve that problem. And Mayorkas has no idea. I mean, he really doesn't. He was on Meet the Press this weekend, and he was talking to Julia Ansley. Uh, Julia Ansley was reporting on the situation at the border for Chuck Todd, and she asked uh, a couple of questions of Mayorkas about what, first of all, was he, was he worried about the, end, the ending of Title 42? And, of course, the question that he always gets asked, is the border secure? Now, I want you to listen to his answers because it's a word salad. He didn't say anything even though he was speaking. Here we go. I'm not worried about uh, Title 42 lifting. We recognize the challenge at the border. We recognize how serious the challenge is and how difficult uh, it is. But worried we're not. Our responsibility is to plan and to execute on those plans, and that is indeed what we have done and continue to do. Now, now, just let me stop that a second here. Um, our responsibility is to plan and execute on those plans. And that's exactly what we have done, and that's exactly what we're going to do. What plan? What, what execute? What plan? There, we've never, we haven't heard a plan except fifteen hundred troops going down to serve as the welcome wagon. Where is the Biden administration plan? Where is Mayorkas' plan to deal with all these this flood of immigrants that's about to happen at the border? He doesn't have one. This is a word salad. We have a plan, and we're executing the plan. The plan's a good plan. You'd like my plan. Of course, you don't know anything about my plan, but I'm going to execute it. And when I execute it, you'll be amazed because what a great plan. Come on, just tell the American people something. I mean, these calls to impeach him, if anybody ever should be impeached for not doing their job and, doing a, and even doing a bad job of trying to tell us what a good job he's doing, he should be impeached. But, of course... I'm not in favor of trying to impeach people when there's absolutely no possibility of him being removed from office. Although, I have to say that interviews like this, in the face of what we're about to have to deal with at the border and what we're dealing with already, is beginning to sway Democrats, and it could sway enough of them to actually say, you know, we, we've, we've, got to, we've got to do something about this. Mayorkas is not getting the job done. President Biden doesn't recognize it. If, if it would get down to the point where it looked like there was a legitimate possibility of Mayorkas being impeached and removed from office, now that, that's a heavy bar to lift, but I think Biden would replace him. But I don't think he'd put anybody that would do a better job in his place because the Biden administration wants this. This is happening because the Biden administration wants all these immigrants coming into the country. Here's what else Mayorkas had to say. Our border is secure. Border is secure because we are maximizing our resources to deliver the most effective results to our border with the most extraordinary workforce in the world. We are maximizing our efforts to secure the border with the most extraordinary workforce in the world. That's why our border is secure. What is that? It's a word salad. It's just, it's just things that he's saying coming out of his mouth. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. He'd just as well be speaking another language that nobody understands because no one can understand what this has got anything to do with border security. He's, he's speaking in generalities when we've got five, over 5,000 people crossing the border every day, 1.2 million to 1.3, 1.4 million a year. Under the Biden administration, it was over half, it was just over half a million. Now we've got three times that many people crossing the border, and there's no relief in sight. And as you can hear from Mayorkas, he doesn't have a plan. All right, final story for today I want us to look at here for a second is the graphic designer who is battling the same group in Colorado that Jack Phillips has been battling for the last 20 years. And um, this case is actually, we're going to hear something. It's already been heard by the Supreme Court, and we're going to get a ruling from them in June. Graphic designer Lori Smith, and this is according to the Daily Signal, believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman. She also wants to create wedding websites. 
Under Colorado's discrimination laws, if she were to create wedding websites, she would be compelled to do the same for same-sex weddings. Now, that this is I, I hear the people who say, well, she should be compelled because same-sex marriage is legal in America. It's legal in California. Making it legal doesn't make it right. And it certainly isn't right if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're serious about your faith, you understand that marriage is between a man and a woman and that that's something that you would have to sacrifice as a believer, as your deeply held religious belief. This is, this is not just an opinion that you hold. This is a religious belief that's a part of the core of who you are if you're a Christian. And we have a First Amendment right in America to the free expression of religion. The government cannot compel us to have a religion. They can't tell us which religion. They can't tell us how to practice our religion. And this is what they're trying to do in Colorado. Represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, she's taken her case to the Supreme Court, asking the court to say that Colorado's discrimination law violates her rights. The Daily Signal team visited Lori's shop, 303 Creative in Denver, ahead of the expected June ruling in her case. Her office is decorated in teal and gold, and it goes into some of the descriptions here. Uh, Lori herself is warm and welcoming. She, she's pretty used to media at this point and quick to, the get to, the po- to get to the point, she says. Quote, I create unique, one-of-a-kind artwork and messaging for my clients. I love what I do. I have clients who come from all different walks of life. I have clients who identify as LGBT. I've always wanted to design and create, and I've always wanted to create and design for weddings. But I can't do that because the state of Colorado is censoring my speech, and here's the important thing, forcing me to create custom and unique artwork, one-of-a-kind designs that celebrate messages about marriage that go against what I believe. And, of course, this is the same thing that was happening to Jack Phillips. Uh, Jack Phillips has also gotten a lot of support from family. I mean, he won his case at the Supreme Court, but it was a narrow victory that basically said, well, when Jack Phillips was slapped down, then it was because this Colorado um, Civil Rights Commission was um, showing unusual animus toward Jack Phillips because of his religious beliefs. They disparaged his religious beliefs. And so they didn't rule on the essence of the case, which is whether or not a law can exist to force people of conscience to go against their conscience and to create something that doesn't line up with what they believe about God and the Bible and about life. And so this case uh, that the Supreme Court has taken, I mean, this is a defining case. If, if Christians can be forced to express themselves in ways that violate their biblical principles, then you've just elevated the government over God in a person's life. And that's something that no Christian can allow. I mean, if you go back to the book of Acts, you have Peter and um, John going before the, the synagogue, the Sanhedrin, I should say, and being told that they have to stop spreading the word about Jesus and talking about him. And Peter and John tell the Sanhedrin that they have to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus, that the government cannot stop them from saying things that God has called them to say. And in the, by the same token, the government today should not be allowed to force Christians to say something that God has particularly forbidden. Uh, forbidden specifically forbidden. So we'll see how this this case comes out. We're going to find out here um, in June, and I hope that it has positive. Uh, surely the court will rule in her favor and protect religious liberty. That would be my prayer. And we, we would also pray that this would affect Jack Phillips' case because he's back in court again with, because he was asked after he refused to make a wedding cake for us to design a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding, then he refused to make a cake for a transgender person, and he's, he was back in the crosshairs. And hopefully the court this time is not going to whiff on the question of religious liberty, that they will go to the heart of it, and declare that 
you cannot force Christians to say things that go against their deeply held religious beliefs. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. Thanks for joining us for Truth and Politics um, We uh, with Dr. Tony Beam, and I hope that you have a great day. Tomorrow we'll begin the show talking about how things are going in terms of uh, South Carolina with the pro-life bill. Uh, that's going to be considered in, in, uh, in the House this week, and I'll have a few more details for you in the morning. I'll keep you up to date about all of that. And, of course, we'll look at the national news and try to apply biblical principles everywhere we find the news. God bless you. Have a great day.